Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 30. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my friend and the doctor, Robert Carter. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing great, Joe. Looking forward to this one. Uh, yes, it is a very momentous occasion to get around to a question that is something we deal with all the time in our other job. Yes. Da, da, da. Exactly. Lately, I've been working on podcasts about big cats. I've been doing a technology podcast with another friend here at nightowl.fm. I've been working on a long episode of the article podcast for creation.com about Charles Darwin and whether or not he was a Christian before he passed away. Oh, excellent article. Yes. It's not easy to read because it's over 5,000 words. (laughs) That's mass half a book. Yes. And there's a few speaking parts. I, I'm portraying a woman in Charles Darwin close to death and then got to go back into the narrator. You're not going into falsetto pretending that you're a woman speaker, are you? No, I would never do that. <laughs> I do subtly just ever so slightly raise the pitch of my voice and just try to talk a little bit sweeter. Oh, of course. Yes. If that's not too weird. How about you? What have you been up to? I've been doing almost nothing but studying COVID-19 genomes. Mm-hmm. I finished an alignment of over 10,000 sequences, which took me a long time, cranking out some numbers, and I'm getting different numbers than I got in July. Ooh, And I'm like, uh, now what? So I have to go back and do a lot of data validation, make sure I didn't make a mistake in my analyses. Something's wrong. There's probably a plus or minus one in there somewhere that I got backwards. Okay. And so everything's like shifted or something like that, but I'll, I'll figure it out. Are you working on a publication for creation.com or another platform? Well, if it had worked out the way I hoped, I was going for the so-called secular route. Um, But I have not, even though I've, let's just say that I'm having significant doubts that this thing was actually manufactured in a laboratory, but that's where I started after reading a particular paper. Interesting. I can't disprove or prove just about anything, but I'm coming up with a new method of examining the genomes that that will might maybe help us understand the origin of this thing. That's, that's I think, is going to be the focus of the paper, if I can get it published. But we'll see. Half of my papers I ever come up with never come to light, because that's the nature of science. Yeah. Okay. Science at work. And you're working on this one with Dr. John Sanford? Yes. Does he have a personal interest in it for his own work, or is this more of a, a side interest for him? Oh, no, 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 no. Mutation accumulation is very much part of Sanford's life story. I mean, the man invented genetic entropy theory and has been publishing on genetic entropy for 20 years now. And uh, how viruses change over time is a very important question. This is the first time that a global pandemic has been something that scientists could research. Well, I know it's you know, we had scientists around for the pandemic in the, what was it, the 1920s, or was it the late 19-teens? That was 1917, 18. That was eight, the, the Spanish flu. Yeah. When that time around, they didn't have as good well, evidence and data to work with. No, I don't even think they knew what viruses were yet. Wow. <laughs> so it, it, this is definitely a turning point for science in general wonder what new discoveries it's going to afford us. Yeah, I don't know. This is one of the most amazing and unique opportunities in world history as far as science is concerned. We turned around and had this thing sequenced within a month after it was discovered. A month later, someone reported that he had artificially recreated the thing from scratch by growing, by putting the DNA into a yeast and having the yeast manufacture the nucleotides and he could brought that out and he, he could recreate the thing. Yeah. It's, it's just crazy. I mean, all this stuff that we were able to do just... And we just threw a couple billion dollars at it, and we still don't even know if it's going to kill everyone in the world or not. You know, it's really kind of frustrating. Science is uh, is very limited. It's almost half blind. Mm. And it's sometimes it takes something like this to realize how limited science and scientists are. I mean, you remember the, the testing fiasco? Mm-hmm. You know, back in February, we rolled out, oh, we're going to have all these tests. And it turns out there was a contaminant in the testing kit, and therefore none of them worked. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Yeah. How true is it that if you have COVID, you may or may not have a fever? Is that usually the one of the first symptoms? Uh, most people who get it aren't showing symptoms, but we know they're getting it because they're showing an antibody response. Antibody response. So, so their body is attacking it. Yeah. It's not like they are immune. 
Uh, it, it's not like they were immune, but they might have been exposed to a similar virus in the past, which allows their body to ramp up production of protection very quickly. Mm. It's, it's, there's just so many unknowns, and we're all standing here staring at this thing saying, none of this makes sense. And I'm still saying it. As yeah. a scientist, I've been studying this for months and intensely for two weeks now, and I can still say, I don't get it. I, I know I'm asking questions off the cuff, but they are honestly questions I've had on the back of my mind that I don't know if I ever got the answers for in the last year. It is a coronavirus, and I've been told that there are many coronaviruses. There are. Are they relatively similar to each other? And if that's the case, is it like someone who previously, maybe in the past year or so, has fought a coronavirus would have their immune system activated by this one. Is that what you're saying? Yes and no. Depends on what you mean by similar to each other. Hmm. On the DNA level, some of these things are incredibly diverse. I mean, to the point where you can't look at it and line up the DNA sequences by eye. Wow. And there's a patchwork of relationship. Like, this piece is found in this virus and that virus over there, but this other piece here is found in this virus, this virus, but not that virus. So they recombine all the time. But the thing that our antibodies are designed for is only a small part of one of the proteins and that can be a lot more similar so even if they're genetically different they can still produce a protein with that same spot on it so there could be cross reactivity with with antibodies for different viral strains so theoretically if you caught a cold colds are caused by a lot of different viruses but some coronaviruses cause a common cold if you caught that, you know, a year or so ago, you actually might have had antibodies for COVID-19 by accident. Interesting. That explains a lot. Right. But we don't know. Hmm. So how much further you have to go? You think uh, probably another week out or maybe even more? <laughs> for intense analysis, probably a week or so before I give up or have something to talk about. I've already started drafting a paper and that actually helps to solidify ideas when you realize what your weak case is, what your strong case is, and what you want to present and what you want to not go down that rabbit hole. And that's helping me craft where I'm going with this. Well, I think that this is a great example of how a scientific research process proceeds and one of the more historical ones. So it's really awesome to have you on the show because you can explain what you're thinking, your process, why you're eliminating some ideas, why you're pursuing others. And it's okay to describe like, well, my starting point was over here and I thought I would reach these conclusions. But then as I'm putting together the data, my my mathematical calculations reflect something else. So I have to realign with reality and just present what is observable. I think that's very fascinating because in my kind of work, I do a lot with very subjective material and it grants you I'm in design in the arts and video production. So everything I'm doing is so subjective. Like the most significant kind of criticism I get is don't use that shade of blue. That shade of blue is stupid. Use this one over here. <laughs> I gave you that criticism last week. <laughs> <laughs> but that is a fair kind of criticism. It, but it is a highly subjective type, and I find it very fascinating to deal with one that's the opposite. And I noticed that you ignored my criticism and went along with the color that you wanted anyway, but okay, whatever. Oh, oh I know, I know. <laughs> There's always room for changes in like, a version 2.0 of my design when it's the new and improved color. Yeah. So you got, you got to leave something behind to improve later. 10 or 12 years ago, some IBM scientists put out a, a new paper about a code within a code in the genome. They use computer analysis, not DNA analysis, but these computer algorithms and analyses to analyze the human genome. And they found these things they called PICNONs. PICNONs. And uh, we, we knew the sequence and we knew where they were. And I spent about a year analyzing these things. And I worked and worked and worked and worked. And after about nine months, I realized they were wrong. Wow. And what they had to discovered was repetitive things in the genome. There are these things called ALU repeats that are all over the genome. Like, you know, 30% of our genome is ALU repeats or something like that. And they found a subset of one of those. And they tend to occur in pairs because the ALU has a, an internal repeat within it. And so I wrote a rebuttal paper and I submitted it and the review came back, oh, we already know this. <laughs> sure enough, someone had published exactly what I was saying about a week before I had submitted my paper. Uh. <laughs> and so all that work 
never saw the light of day. That was literally a year's worth of work and nothing came of it. Mm. And that's the way science goes. Mm. It's like the time when in graduate school, my friend and I came up with an idea of how to clone fluorescent proteins out of corals. We knew that everyone else takes about two years. We said, we can do it in 24 hours. And we did. And as soon as we got a green one, I said, okay, let's get a red one. Because if we can clone a red fluorescent protein, we'll be millionaires. And 48 hours later, I had a Petri dish with one spot. It was like a piece of lipstick. It was a bacterial colony that was expressing a red fluorescent protein that was in a soft coral literally two days before. And I'm staring at this thing saying, there's a million dollars in my hand. And in my other hand, I had a paper that had came out that day. Red fluorescent proteins. (laughs) Some guy in Moscow had gone down to his aquarium store two years prior and bought the same little soft coral that I bought at my aquarium store in Miami. And it probably came from the same Indonesian village. And he laboriously and painstakingly spent years extracting this thing, purifying it, figuring out the sequence, cloning it into bacteria. So now he can announce to the world he has the red fluorescent protein. You ought to get the credit because you did it in less than 72 hours. Yeah. Well, we published our techniques paper. Here's how to do it, everybody. And it was, you know, it was brilliant. In fact, we got, I got a patent on the green that we had sequenced, but the red had exactly the same amino acid sequence as his. It was exactly the same protein. So I'm really thinking it was from the same organism. (laughs) Oh, well, (laughs) very sad. (laughs) Well, speaking of scientific subjects, this is going to be a good one. This is going to be really juicy for you to dive into. This is going to be hard for me to not get lost in the woods. So you're going to have to guide the conversation carefully. How's that? Sounds good. I'm really intrigued by this subject and I'll be just waiting with bated breath to cut you off and tell you where to steer it. (laughs) All right, bring it on. So we're going to discuss the origin of life or origins of life. Do we want to call it plural? I, I kind of like the singular, but either way. It should be singular because as far as we know, it only happened once. Okay. And why is this a subject of sciences? Why is it something that scientific research has talked a lot about in the last 100 years? It seems like this is something that, grant you, we come from a ministry that deals a lot with this. But if I just take a step back and I'm thinking about the origin of life, what does that really have to do with science? And the reason I'm asking that is because the origin of life sounds like something that would be so so ancient, so deep into the past. It's older than all of those ancient technologies we've been talking about. So it'd be difficult to track down the origin of life and know much of anything about it, know what it looked like, because it hasn't originated again since. We haven't just been looking down at the ground and seen something spontaneously combust with life. So a scientific method, kind of like you were describing Robert, you're you're pouring over data. You're using ingredients today. You're experimenting and you're crafting something with new connections, new combinations. And you're able to test these processes and provide the guidelines on how to recreate the same results for a paper. But how does this come about for origin of life? It seems kind of fascinating that Scientists want to tell us where it came from, but this sounds more like ancient history than it has anything to do with sciences. Yeah, there's a lot of philosophy involved in this. There's a lot of wishful thinking. There's a lot of imagination and humans wondering and pondering where we came from. And so I guess if it's, if it's possible for science in a test tube today to answer the question where we came from, humans just want to know. Because honestly, without a creation myth or creation story, what are we? Mm. We're either stardust or we're created in the image of God. But without even stardust, I mean, what is there? Yeah. We're just, you just shrug. I don't know. What does life mean? You know, at least if you say that, you know, we came from a big bang and after several generations of stars exploding, the, our star formed and the earth condensed out of the class, the, the gas cloud around that star and life came from those chemicals. At least you say, okay, we are, you know, big bang remnant stardust particles. That, it's not really satisfying, but at least there's an answer. 
<laughs> right. I couldn't imagine what it would be like if there was absolutely no knowledge or no guessing of where things originated. Well, everything depends on it. Any knowledge, any history, uh, anything of, of importance, you know, every, it, it, it is the most profound thing that we all take for granted. And then we do extol its virtues it and we prize it. We do idolize it. We try to lengthen it. But at the same time, <laughs> we also have a, a lot of that philosophy that goes into it and it tells us something is just so. And we think it's almost like our brain has tricked us into thinking that what we know is scientific fact. But if we are super duper honest about what we know about the origin of life, it's more like you were saying philosophy and a belief that this is the way it came about. Yeah. But speculations about the origin of life go back thousands of years to the ancient Greeks and a lot of other cultures. I mean, most uh, ancient cultures had a creation myth of some sort. In modern times, uh, the origin of life speculations, they, they're squarely rooted in the writings of Charles Darwin. He wrote, you know, I think it was the last page of The Origin of Species about maybe the, the creator uh, endued some filaments with life. And he didn't say how many or what stage of development they were, but he didn't go all the way back to an ultimate origin of life. And later on, he writes to his friend Joseph Hooker, uh, 1863. I'm going to quote this. He goes, I have long regretted that I truckled to public opinion and used Pentateuchal term of creation. <laughs> Wow. So, yeah. So, he didn't like that last page. And he says, by which I really meant appeared by some wholly unknown process. It is mere rubbish thinking at present of origin of life. One might as well think of origin of matter. Yeah. So, he's trying to say that we don't know what the process was. <laughs> we just think that it happened spontaneously, kind of. And it's rubbish to even think about it's it. It's even rubbish. Well, wait a minute. Darwin, he also said it's you might as well think about the origin of matter. They do that today. That's called the Big Bang. A whole lot. Yeah. And so, Darwin was really in an interesting position where he wasn't willing to absolutely jettison some very strange version of a Christian worldview creation story. And yet, he's lamenting the fact that he didn't do it in The Origin of Species in a private letter. And uh, eight years later, he writes to Joseph Hooker again. And this is where we get his famous warm little pond uh, phrase. He said, but if, and oh, what a big if, we could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes. At the present, such matter would be instantly devoured or absorbed, which would not have been the case before living creatures were formed. So, here he is speculating about the origin of life from prebiotic, non-living chemicals. The whole warm little pond idea, that, that's straight out of, Joe's, uh, out of uh, Darwin. Now, granted, Darwin pretty much plagiarized everything he ever wrote, and just about everything he wrote has precedence in other people's writings. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if this wasn't being discussed at some scientific meeting amongst a bunch of guys sitting around smoking their pipes in a drawing room. And here he just puts pen to paper and writes it down, because we see that a lot in his writings. Hmm. Wow. But the whole origin of life idea goes right back to the father of evolutionary theory. What did people think before his time? I've heard that some of his forefathers, like his grandfather, had some ideas about an evolutionary-like process that wasn't nearly as advanced as Charles. But you're saying that you know the Greeks had ideas. In general, yeah. uh, was there one popular idea outside of Christianity and the Old Testament and Book of Genesis? No, no they're all over the place. Usually in ancient cultures, the gods are involved in something. But usually there was a war between the gods and this other god created living things and they caused a racket and this other god didn't like it. So he came and started warring against the living things and things like that. Or maybe it's the sweat of Odin's armpits is what created humans or you know, oh whatever. <laughs> but Darwin's grandfather was a full-bore evolutionist, Erasmus Darwin. He wrote a paper on evolution, uh, sorry, an entire book on evolution. But since it wasn't politically correct in the day, he wrote it as poetry, and yet it was there. Darwin said that he had memorized entire passage of his grandfather's book, so we know Darwin was steeped in evolutionary theory. And it's funny because I just realized that it was Erasmus Darwin who talked about the filaments 
at the beginning of life that evolved into other things. And here Darwin wrote it later on in The Origin of Species. Oh, boy, I just realized there's a direct connection between the two. Oh, wow. Cool. Awesome. Scientific discovery right here on Equinox. (laughs) Maybe. So then the warm little pond idea is the idea of where evolution explains life came from. It's just part of the theory. But no one can recreate it. No one can approach it really in any way, shape, or form. But it's the idea that we all evolved from some sort of pond scum, primordial soup, the thing that we say, you know, we came out of the sea. (laughs) And it's that it spontaneously occurred. It was like you were saying earlier that it's uh, the idea that it happened spontaneously, but it came from nowhere. And what I'm trying to get at is that we're not describing life itself like procreation. We're not describing like having children, you know, getting pregnant, you know, procreating that way. We're not talking about, you know, lizards laying eggs of other lizards. We're, we're not describing procreation. We're describing where does life come from? I mean, where did it come from? Because it doesn't show up on Jupiter or the moon. It doesn't, it's not something we can observe happening in Antarctica. It's not just happening some way. There's not a condition where life spontaneously is created. It does make sense that there was a beginning to all life. But what is the logic behind that? Can you explain that before? You know, I've heard it before from other scientists, but I've never heard you explain the idea of the logic behind it had to have a starting point. Well, already you're using a term that some of the secularists are going to jump okay. on. Good. You've used the term spontaneous several times. Okay. And they'll say, oh, no, it wasn't spontaneous. What are you talking about? And so their version of it is a very long period of time of chemical reactions randomly happening and a very blurry line between life and non-life. So for a secularist, origin of life is a gradual thing from going from no life to yes, now we have life. And we don't really know the time in between when it became manifest. Oh, that's really annoying because yes. it doesn't make any sense. Am I alone? Oh, it's really annoying, yeah. Because that doesn't make any sense to me. No, and I think they've really moved the goalposts on this one a lot. So the reason I'm getting all excited thinking about that just does not add up is because we know we can go from life to non-life. You know, there's a very clear and distinct, obvious point of death. Very easily. <laughs> so Yes, and just go back to our last episode on... You know, what happens after you die? Okay, very easy to figure that one out. Yeah. I just cannot fathom the idea then that life happens so gradually that it comes from a non-life source so gradually that we cannot tell when it happens in between. <laughs> that makes no sense. Well, some people even talk about pre-cellular life. What does that even mean? That the chemical reactions like- that life depends upon <laughs> were happening in this warm little pond without a cell. And the first reproducing molecules were reproducing themselves before they were encapsulated in the cellular membrane, and then we had a truly reproducing organism. Huh. <laughs> what do you make of all that? Yeah, there's, well, it, it, it's such rife speculation, and it's just storytelling. And honestly, when we test it with chemistry, probability, information theory, basic you know, molecular physics... All of those giant, vast areas of knowledge argue very strongly against any spontaneous origin of life. And by, by spontaneous, I mean it happened by itself. I don't care how long it took. But it went from non-living to living at some point in time. And that is something that science argues extremely strongly against. In fact, they don't have any arguments. Every single one of their suppositions is couched in so many caveats and Generally, it just flies in the face of rationality. Mm. Now, I know that what I just said would get a very hostile response in a lot of scientific audiences. Mm. Of course. But that's because they have to hold on to this tooth and nail because if they lose this, they lose everything. If life didn't come about by itself, then what? It must have been made. And if it was made, at what point was it made? Did God make bacteria or did he make Adam and Eve? Hmm. So it didn't in the last, I don't know, few decades, wasn't there a scientist that performed an experiment in the laboratory with what they called the warm little pond 
in a test tube and create some sort of evidence or proof of life that could be done in the laboratory? And you must be talking about the Miller-Urey experiment uh, done many decades ago now, okay. where they took some very simple chemicals like ammonia and, and water, and they put it in a boiling flask where the steam would rise and went through a spark chamber. Zap, 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 zap. They would cool off and go back into the flask again, reboil, and would circulate. And what they said was, well, there'd be lightning on the prebiotic earth, and there'd be these simple compounds here, but no oxygen, because oxygen is too reactive. Oxygen reacts with everything, and it gets removed from the system. You need living things to produce oxygen. So, there must not have been oxygen initially. And after a while, they produced some chemicals that are found in living things. And they said, see that? The origin of life is possible. The natural world can produce all the building blocks that life requires. Now we just need time. And the Miliuri experiment is something that a lot of people have hung their hat on. A lot of people have lost their Christian faith over. A lot of people think, okay, that's it. That's the answer. It's all wrapped up. We're done. The original life really did happen. But wow, this is not true. What they showed was that random chemical reactions can produce random chemicals. Simple chemicals can produce other simple chemicals. yeah. Most of what they produced, we would call tar. Those molecules randomly combined into a gooey black mess. And yeah, if you extract compounds in there, you do find a couple of amino acids. Some of the simple amino acids are there. Sure enough, yep, it's true. But they're overwhelmed by a million other random chemicals. Life isn't random. Life isn't based on random chemicals. Life has very specific chemicals that it uses. When you say life uses specific chemicals, you mean that it's not like there can be... Well, if this were a fantasy, we could have rocks that have life. We could have we could have other kinds of matter, like trees, that could be sentient, as though they had brains in the fibers of their, uh, their trunk. Uh, so you're saying it, it takes certain kinds of chemical ingredients to make life as we know it. Not just certain kinds, very specific certain Mm. kinds. There are tens of thousands, at least, possible amino acids. Wow. We use 20 of them. We actually use 21 of them, but the 21st one is an alternate reading of a codon. That's usually a stop codon. But anyway, the human body, in general, uses 20 of them, and 19 of these have mirror image forms. That is in the difference between your left hand and your right hand. Okay. If you ripped off your thumb and stuck it on the other side of your left hand (laughs) and ripped off your pinky and stuck it on the other side of your left hand, you'd have something that looks very much like your right hand. And hurt. But they're mirror images. You cannot, if you put them both face down or palm down. Almost look the same. Or if you put them both knuckles down, there's nothing you can do if you put your knuckles together, one's up and one's down. They're mirror images of each other. This happens in organic chemistry all the time. Because carbon has four bonds. If you stick four different things on a carbon, you can do it in two different ways. And those two ways are mirror images of one another. This is a very well-known thing. All of, in fact, if you take a purified form of, um, you know, asparagine or, um, you know, alanine, one of the amino acids, take a purified form of that and you put it in a test tube in water and shine polarized light through it. The light will rotate a little bit, a couple of degrees. Okay. In fact, it will go towards the left. It'll rotate, you know, uh, if you're looking like a turn the dial to the left or to the right, it'll go counterclockwise. It'll go to the left. All the amino acids that we use, except uh, glycine, I guess, doesn't have the fourth component. So 19 of them, though, they will rotate light to the left. But all of them have another form that if you purified it, it would rotate light to the right. They have a mirror image form. But for some strange reason, we don't use those mirror image forms in life, and there's no reason for it. I mean, what's wrong with the other asparagine? The creator could have used that one if he wanted to. Now, you can't mix them together because then you can't, then you get very complicated proteins. You could actually, you could have used the right hand form and the left handed form and coded for them in the, in the genome differently. Nothing wrong with that either. Oh. But we only use half of them. And of those, it's only a very small fraction of all the possible ones. But the sugars are opposite. We have, you know, dozens of different sugars that we make, and all the sugars in our body are the right-handed form, and we don't use the left-handed form for no reason at all. Now, if you take the right-handed amino acid and 
and use it in um in the cell, the cell will come to a stop. It'll poison it. Oh. Because if you put a different amino acid in a protein, it changes the shape of the protein. And the shape of the protein depends on what amino acids are there. So you can't just switch out the left and right-handed form. But there's nothing that would have prevented the right-handed form from being used in the first place. Could you understand if both were used? If both were used, yeah, it would make a lot more sense. It would be a um, not as powerful of a design argument. The other things we could turn to, but this is one of the classics. The way to get purified amino acids is to start with biology. You know, take a piece of chicken and denature the proteins and chop them up with trypsin and you get amino acids. And those amino acids are all going to be in the left-handed form. Beautiful. Easiest way to do it. If you do it in chemistry, there's all sorts of chemical reactions where you can manufacture amino acids and they're always 50-50 left-handed and right-handed. Remember thalidomide? Thalidomide. You know what thalidomide is? And back in the 60s or early 70s, I think it was late 60s, doctors were prescribing a, um, a drug to pregnant women, which did a great job in reducing morning sickness. It was one of the wonder drugs of the oh. decade. Take away morning sickness. But thalidomide has a mirror image form. And when they started manufacturing it, they, they did the testing on the biological form. They manufactured it. They got the right and left-handed types all mixed together. And when they started giving that to women, a lot of children were being born with missing limbs. Whoops. Oh, wow. The other form of thalidomide is a teratogen. It causes birth defects. And they didn't know it. That's terrible. I had a a good friend of mine, uh, several years of summer camp. He was a counselor with me. um, And he had a fake leg... He had a leg that went down to just below his knee on one side, and he is missing most of his fingers on one hand and had a couple of fingers on his other hand. And I, I never asked him, but I believe he was a thalidomide baby because we were in that generation. Wow. And it's just, yeah. So, chirality or the, the handedness, the left or right handedness of molecules is really important. In fact, a lot, of, a lot of the things that we smell, most all of the smelly chemicals are chiral. And some of them, oh, I wish I remembered. It might be spearmint versus wintergreen. Uh-huh. I don't think so, but it's something like that. Two things you recognize. Yeah. Uh, it might be spearmint versus um, uh, one of the seeds, not poppy seeds, uh, caraway seeds or something like that. I'm trying to dredge something from my memory that I'm just, I don't quite remember at the moment. Ten minutes from now, I'll remember, but right now I don't <laughs> because of the way the brain works. <laughs> Older episode. Um but two of those smells that we smell all the time are the same exact chemical, and they smell totally different. Well, one is a right-handed form, and one is a that left-handed is form. awesome. Huh. Of the same chemical. So, if life uses only one half of all the available chemicals, and there's no reason for it, the chirality problem is a massive probability problem for the origin of life scenario. It just so happens that we chose all the left-handed out of 20 amino acids. That is so unusual. Yeah. <laughs> this 2 to the 20th power probability, 1 over 2 to the 20th. That's the beginning of our probability problems. Another problem is purity. Life is mo- molecularly specific. Life works on single atoms at a time, and you need that atom. Chemistry doesn't. If you take stuff happening in a test tube, it's mass action. It's not specific to a single molecule, one at a time. Life will take a molecule, do something to it, take another molecule, do something to it, take another molecule, do something to it. And it requires very specific molecules. Even at the basic building blocks of life, the simplest organisms use simple compounds, but there are millions of other compounds that will poison it. Like if you need butane, which is a four carbon molecule, if you've got pentane or propane, which is a five-carbon or three-carbon molecule, they're useless. You need butane only, and butane comes in different shapes. You need that form of butane. It's not like you can just randomly grab anything out of the environment, especially if you're talking about incipient life. Before you have a really robust uh, metabolism, you're only going to be able to operate on a couple of chemicals, and you better have a lot of those chemicals, and they better be in pure form, or your toast and yet we don't see the production of massive amounts of pure chemicals anywhere in the natural world outside of biology. Huh. And another massive problem they have is polymerization. All living things depend upon really long molecules. You have six feet of DNA inside every one of your cells. 
You have massive chains of sugars, we call them polysaccharides or carbohydrates. Yeah. You have all these things called proteins. Those are long chains of amino acids, some of them up to you know, several thousand amino acids in a row, all chained together. But all three of those things are destroyed by water. When you join two sugars together, there's an OH on one sugar and an H on the other. You join them together, the OH and H pop off, it makes a water. Same thing happens when you make proteins. It produces water. Same thing happens when you manufacture DNA. When you link the nucleotides together, it produces a water. The thing is, the reaction of water adding itself back to those things is a lot faster than the things come together. So if you take a bunch of sugars or a bunch of nucleotides or a bunch of amino acids and put them in a beaker and let it sit on the shelf, you come back anytime you want and you start purifying it, you will find occasionally two amino acids that have linked together. You'll extremely rarely find three, but an entire gallon of high concentration amino acids, you probably won't find any four amino acids that have linked themselves together in a chain. And I don't care how long you want to wait. Yeah. Because once that bond is formed, waters will destroy it. The waters destroy the bonds faster than they're formed. So yeah, they can randomly form, but they're, they're destroyed very quickly. So what you're getting at is that the elements don't want this to accidentally happen. It's kind of very unlikely for it to hold itself together. Life is based on an improbable set of molecules that require an improbable set of things to happen before life can be even be. Wow. <laughs> okay, check this out. Ready? Yeah. Temperature is an average molecular motion. So if you look at water, it might be 70 degrees, right? Not every single water molecule there is 70 degrees. Some are going faster and some are going slower. Just like take a cue ball and whack a racked set of, of billiard balls. Some of them go fly away quickly, right? And some of them don't go very fast at all. Yeah. But all they did is absorb the power from the cue ball. The average of all the balls flying around all averages out to how many, how many is this, 15 balls in a, in a rack? One fifteenth of the power of the cue ball. But some are going faster and some are going slower. The average is the same, but on an individual ball level, the speed is not. Same thing happens in water. There are water molecules in any container of water that are traveling faster than the speed of sound in water. To a biomolecule, it's like getting hit with a bullet. Those water molecules destroy any biological molecule they come in contact with. <laughs> so if you want biological molecules in water without a cell... Good luck, buddy. It's not right. going to happen. So if you want to form life, you have to form these biological molecules and enclose them within a membrane faster than the speed of sound in water. It's <laughs> like, Or a bullet will zip through there and destroy everything you're trying to do. It'd be like trying to you know, build a cart house during a hurricane. Water is toxic to life. Water is the worst thing. You, I mean, any organic chemist will tell you that if you want to polymerize something, you have to you remove the water first. Well, wait a second. What's this warm little pond thing then? How do we deal with water in the origin of life? And so, you know, lots of exotic things. Oh, no, it formed in between sheets of mica and, and all these other ideas because people are really struggling with this whole water concept. And yet, water's everywhere on Earth, etc. So, I have massive problems with the Miller-Urey experiment. All they showed was that random chemistry can happen. It's nothing. It doesn't do anything for the origin of life. I know one good example that we've passed around before in our circles is that if you took a the ingredients to make a frog and you put it into a blender and you add a little bit of electricity or no electricity and you just turn on the blender and let it run and whirl, it's never going to arrange the ingredients for a frog to make one. And yet, if you think about it, every can of Campbell's soup has all the biomolecules life could ever oh. want in it. <laughs> wow. How many billions of cans of soup has the Campbell's Soup Company made? Oh, yeah. This is the biggest origin of life experiment anyone could imagine. I mean, every can of canned salmon and tuna, every off-brand can of soup, every jar of tomato sauce is loaded with biological molecules. And if life starts growing in there, what do we say? Oh, a contamination. We didn't sterilize it properly. Because we know good and well that life doesn't come from nothing. Ever. And so, yeah, the frog in a blender idea, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Because you got all the things that life requires right there. In fact, if it right away, you still have ATP. In a can of soup, you don't have any ATP left. So, there's no energy 
no no possible ability of doing biological work in a can of soup. But the, a recently dead blended organism, it's all right there. In fact, you still have intact cells, and yet it cannot ever form a living thing. Wow. So life is extremely improbable, is what we're getting at with the arrangement of the ingredients. So we return to the philosophical. I feel like we have to touch upon the the Judeo-Christian version so that the audience understands what that is and how as well as possible that makes sense. But do you want to get to anything else before we get to that for wrap-up? Oh, there's so many more things to get into. I mean, we could talk forever about the chicken and egg problems between protein, DNA, and RNA, uh, the requirement for ATP, and yet the ATP is made by a protein that's coded in the DNA, and the DNA requires ATP to make the protein. Uh, we could talk about the monkeys, you know, take an infinite universe full of monkeys typing out random letters. Eventually, you're going to reproduce the works of Shakespeare. You know, that, that yeah. ridiculous scenario, because what they don't tell you is that the universe will very quickly gum up with paper. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, we can talk about the Fermi paradox and the idea that life should be brimming. The universe should be full of life, and yet it's not. Yeah, so explain that one. That one is pretty interesting. Because it's the idea that if life happens here, it has to happen relatively frequently throughout the universe, or at least the galaxy, right? If it happened here, that means it's possible for it to happen. Given an extremely large universe with an extremely large number of galaxies, an extremely large number of stars and planets, even if only one out of every one million planets can support life, that's trillions of planets. Therefore, life should have evolved many times over in the universe. In fact, there are parts of the universe that, you know, you could have an alien race a billion years older than us. Where are they? We should literally be tripping over alien cultures everywhere. And if, you know, that alien race, uh, after a million years of technology, figured out how to sail to the stars and they planted a, a colony, and a million years later, that colony planted another colony, a million years later, that colony planted another colony, where your number of colonies going up exponentially and we're well within the realm of the age of the universe, there should be aliens on this and planet. many other inhabitable planets. And every yeah. other place we can we imagine. should be able to manage space travel. Yeah, and plus, we're not even talking mm-hmm. about spaceships. The, the universe should be full of spaceships, just people cruising around in outer space, because, you know, someday if we go into space, people aren't going to live on Earth anymore. Yeah, Star Trek and Star Wars style. Yeah, but it's, it's the future of humanity. If we don't incinerate ourselves or Jesus doesn't come back, we're going to be living in space. And people born in space are going to always be in space. That's People think it's so sci-fi, but I'm like, this is cool. I would do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be a space captain and oh, just see, uh, see Earth. I'm just going to go. I'm still going to have all my, I, I'm, you know, I'll still be able to, I won't be able to instantly communicate because of the speed of light, but we'll still have email and we'll still be able to download all the Hollywood blockbusters. So it's not like we're going to be you know, removed from Earth culture. Anyway. Fermi Paradox tells us that life should be everywhere in space, and it's not. Therefore, life is not everywhere in space. In fact, it's uh, unique to Earth as far as we know. Oh, so now, okay, now let's go into some of the theological things here, because there's some really interesting Christian difficulties with this. Yeah, go ahead. If, if life does exist outside Earth, on Mars, or on you know, Venus, or I'm trying to think of a name of, uh, you know, some planet around Betelgeuse or something like that, someplace way out in the middle of nowhere. Does that cause a theological problem? Uh, I don't think it does. Why not? But I also think that a lot of Christians need to be careful to explain why it doesn't. Because the uh, many of the culturally understood assumptions are that it's it's life, therefore, it's it's like we're talking about alien life. And if you've got alien life, you probably have yes. sentient alien life. And if you've got sentient alien life, then it's a problem for theology because in the Hebrew and the Judea, the Judaism and the in, in the Christianity and uh, also other religions tied to it like Islam, you do have this idea that there are sins and they're paid with a price that is available for redemption is available to the human race here because God's Son died for our sins, and He'll pay our penalty. God's Son, who was a descendant of Adam, 
so the uh, the Bible says that from from one man came all death and sin, and also through Jesus and <laughs> him paying the penalty for us, it, then uh, any any of the children of Adam who have faith in Jesus related to him can be saved. And, and that would mean that what that, what does that mean? Well, it just means that God is having a relationship with his creation on good terms. Whereas the alien out there in space, still affected by the effects of death. Yeah, the Bible tells us clearly that sin and death is a curse on all of creation. Romans 8, multiple times in there, as if there's an alien race out there. I mean, imagine if there's some alien race that's laboring under the sin-cursed, death-filled universe. They can't be saved. They have no kinsman redeemer. Now, maybe God made a, you know, a green Martian redeemer, called a Martian Jesus. Fine, God can do what he wants. But that's not what the Bible is, is, is telling us. It's telling us that the whole universe is weighed down by the weight of Adam's sin, not some green alien sin. Yeah, yeah. Or imagine that there's a race of aliens that has not yet fallen into the sin. They're not corrupted yet. They're not evil. They're not killing each other. You know, Pandora. Some alien race that is perfect and pure and noble and never lies, never cheats, never steals. What would happen if we found them? We would destroy them. We would become Satan to those people. We would corrupt them. Humans would corrupt these noble aliens. Well, that makes no sense theologically at all. We can't do that. Right. It is exactly what would happen. So, it's a moot point. If those things exist, we can never interact with them. So, maybe God created life somewhere else in some other galaxy. Fine. I, I can't say God didn't, but it's a moot point. We'll never know it. Mm. The, the Bible, the whole, I mean, another, another interesting thing is that we ask the question, why did God create the universe? And the answer is, he created the universe to bring about a bride for Christ. The purpose of creation, he, he created angels. He doesn't need to create a universe. But he creates a universe, makes man a little lower than the angels, basically says, hey guys, watch this. And he creates a system where when man fell, he redeemed worthless man. Angels can't be redeemed. If an angel rebels against God, they're tossed into the lake of fire. If man rebels against God, he has a potential of begging forgiveness from that God, and God will grant forgiveness to the man who begs or woman. Angels, they could weep for a million years and God will still throw them into the lake of fire. There's no redemption for angels, but there's redemptions for people made of mud. What? The, the, whole, the whole idea of creation is profound, and it's wrapped up in this whole life question. Right. The purpose of life, the meaning of life, why would God have done this? It's for his own pleasure, and it's so that he can have us live with him for eternity in the heavenly state, which will be a recreated earth. Okay, cool. This is the crossroads of history, philosophy, religion, sciences. It's all here. Yeah. But if grass exists on some other planet or bacteria or some blue cow with 15 horns, I don't care. (laughs) It's sentient life that's the problem. It's morally accountable life that's the problem. If there's no morally accountable life out in the stars, theologically, I have no problem with life being out there. But if life is out there, forget the whole evolution thing. It's created life. Like if they discover life on Mars, God made it. Or even more likely, it came from Earth. Oh, yeah. And some meteor strike broke off a big piece of the continent, flew it up into space, and eventually made its way to Mars and didn't burn up totally in the atmosphere. And one or two little microscopic spores survived, and now there's life on Mars or Venus. I have no problem with that. But if we find life in those places, it is probably from Earth. But just, you know, the fact that we found all these planets around all these stars over the last decade or so, and how people had a hard time imagining that there was other planets around other stars. I didn't. I said, oh, this is really cool. Of course there are. Why would God just produce stars? Why wouldn't he produce rocks flying around those stars and all sorts of different types of them? Because our God is a creative genius. But then the question of, is our life on those planets comes up? And that's something I hope one day we'll be able to answer. If Jesus delays, we will be flying probes to other stars. It will happen. We'll figure out the physics. It might take 100 years for it to get there. 100 years... Or, or less for the, the radio transmission to come back, but we're going to do it. Yeah. Incredible. Rob, that was an excellent episode. Are you ready to go in for a landing? Well, okay. I, I, I don't know. I have so many more things to say. <laughs> there's, 
There's, I mean, I'm looking at my notes. You're, you're crossing things out on the uh, on the Google Docs sheet here. It's like, well, we haven't talked about that yet. Come on, let's go more. But no, yeah, we can always do more more episodes on the subject because oh, this yes, is please. fun and cool and interesting. All right, I guess we can stop. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this quest, the quest for life. If you found this interesting in any way, consider sharing this whole episode with a family member or friend or telling them about the podcast Equinox. If you want to dig deeper into these topics, you can find the links to the stuff that we are discussing in the show in the show notes on the website. They're available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 30 for this episode number. The show notes are also with this episode if you are already subscribed to the show in an app on your phone. You should also check out Biblical Genetics, which is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch his videos and join discussions in the comments. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox. I do listen to quite a few podcasts and quite a few of them when they reach their maximum, they just have to stop. And I know they'll be back next week. I think we could definitely turn this into more discussion. So if you can find an angle for us uh, to further the discussion. Oh, yeah. We, in fact, the most profound thing I wanted to say, we didn't even say. So we'll have to get back to it someday. Which was the taking it for granted? No, it's, it's uh-huh. if you had... All the things that life requires inside an early cell. Yet all the biology, all the, the DNA, all the proteins, all the sugars, you had ATP, you had everything life requires. Yeah. You would have gotten 0% of the way to having life. <laughs> all that is completely irrelevant because you will have no information content in the cell. You don't need DNA. You need a code written into the DNA. You don't need sugars. You need a sugar code. You don't need random proteins. You need very specific proteins that do very specific things. And all these things have to be tightly integrated into one on one another, or life doesn't exist. So in one sense, you know, the Miller-Urey experiment, all the things that they want to do, so what? Mm. It gets you literally nowhere. Because if without a code, you have no life. Wow. By the way, I'm still recording. That can be spliced into somewhere back there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe after the uh, end theme. Maybe I can um, stop recording now? Yeah. We're good? Good job, man.